So I'm sorry this is a little different because I didn't have a PDT talk prepared um, or uh, good enough to go with such short notice, but hopefully this, you'll find this interesting. Um, we all know a lot about non-melanoma skin cancers, of course, but the purpose of this talk is to discuss the ones that are less common. So not basal cell and not squamous cell, but everything else. So what are the challenges in treating these other kinds of skin cancers? Well, the main one is that there is an absence of prospective therapeutic studies. So we don't really know what to do um, from an objective randomized control trial standpoint. There's also a lack of sufficient cases to really develop treatment guidelines. Okay? Now, if there are rare cases here, a few here, a few there, we have a problem in that we don't even really know uh, what to do with our own cases. There are often a lot of centers around the country that have a number of cases, but those have limitations because those are often cases over 30 or 40 year time window during which period of time the surgeons have changed, the doctors have changed, the techniques of treatment have changed, the ways of recording information have changed, and so there's recall bias, information bias, it's often single center data that's not really population-based, and there's an evolving standard of care over time. So what do we do in practice? In practice, when you're faced with one of these, you do what you've done in the past, you call a more experienced colleague, there's some listservs you can access, you can read a textbook, if you want to be very current, you can do a literature search and try to find the most recent case series, perhaps, because that's all there ever is, case series data, and see what they did and if it worked, and then you can try to do the same thing. There are some guidelines, but they're very limited. So the NCCN, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, does have guidelines for basal cell, squamous cell, melanoma, and also for a couple of rare non-melanoma skin cancers, specifically DFSP and Merkel cell carcinoma. It's a very good website. You just register on it. You have access to all of these. It's, they're fairly elaborate, lots of flowcharts, footnotes, etc. And some of them are painfully self-evident, but at least it gives you some understanding of what first and second line treatments are. The AJCC criteria for staging don't really talk much about non-melanoma skin cancer at all, unfortunately. And the NCCN guidelines are restricted to those two tumors. So if, for the following talk, I'm not going to talk much about dermatopathology. I'm not going to talk about clinical differential diagnosis for the sake of simplicity. I'm just going to focus on if you do know what kind of tumor you have, you've got the path report back, you know what it is, what do you do with it? Okay. So we'll go tumor by tumor. Atypical fibrosanthoma. A lot of these look similar. You'll also get that's a recurrent theme. They all look like solitary nodules on the head and neck or other sun-exposed areas in elderly people. They're very difficult to tell apart. So this is another reason to always biopsy things because um, like the old quote goes, no one expects the Spanish Inquisition. No one expects a rare tumor. So if you don't biopsy it, you won't know it's there. Um, so that's what these things look like. And that's what one might look like on the ear. Pretty big, bad, easily identifiable one. And here's a less easily identifiable one that looks more bland, like maybe a basal cell on, on the forehead. And what do you do with these? Well, these have a relatively rare risk of metastasis, so local cure is usually sufficient. And that means some kind of surgical excision. So you can do a white local, you can do Mohs. There are some studies that have shown Mohs is possibly more effective when there are larger case, um, sorry, um, Mohs is probably more effective in certain cases, especially recurrent cases, because for AFX, 
there are cases of asymmetrical subclinical spread beyond the visible margins. Okay. But that also means that if you are doing MOS in these cases, you also want to take a relatively wider margin. So it's sort of almost modified MOS. You're not going to take a one or two millimeter margin. You're going to take about a centimeter for the first stage because you know there are some asymmetric nodules or dots or something else similar beyond the visible margins. Trichelemal carcinoma. Again, very similar solitary indolent lesions in older individuals. They can be exophytic. In general, do not metastasize microlocally. So this is what one might look like on the head, a common location. And this is what a really uh, much bigger one might look like on the head. Uh, pretty easy to tell that that's something that shouldn't be there. Now here, again, you can do wide local excision and you can do MOS, and both have similar cure rates. Um, you can also try in patients for whom surgery is not indicated radiation um, if surgery were not an option. Microcystic adnexal carcinoma. These are solitary nodules, more in middle-aged women perhaps. They can, again, occasionally metastasize, but not too often. Here is a case on the lower extremity, and you can see a little bit of a depression where the punch biopsy was done. And here is that same um, lesion closed up. And you can see it's a little bit bigger than what it appears to be, but it's not that much bigger than it appears to be. Here is another case, however, that is somewhat more complex. And looking at the preoperative photograph, you can't really expect the size of the subsequent defect, both of the medial canthus and the lateral canthus. That's what it looks like under histopathology. So the take-home is that for microcystic adnexal carcinoma, probably there is some utility in sometimes using MOS um, because there can be deep extension far beyond the visible margins. And the final wound defects are often significantly bigger than the clinically apparent lesions. Chemotherapy and radiotherapy for most of these tumors and for MAC as well are not really indicated. Leiomyosarcoma, this is not really a skin tumor. This is really a muscle tumor, but it often manifests in the skin. And they're two totally different types. There's a so-called superficial variant, which by our standards is still not that superficial. It's fairly deeply penetrating, but it's not as deep as the deeper-seated variant, which is very deep indeed. So first, you want to make sure you don't have the deep variant. If you have the deep variant, send it to someone else, um, because that's going to go possibly all the way down to the viscera. If it's the superficial variant, you have a low risk of metastasis, and you can possibly treat it yourself. So here's a case on the ear of all places. Um, and if it's a superficial variant, you will need a complete excision with relatively broad margins, two centimeters lateral margin and one centimeter deep margin. So it's a fairly big excision. And again, if you choose to do MOS, you want to again take the first stage as pretty wide. That's what they call narrow margins in the treatment of leiomyosarcoma. But of course, for dermatologists, a two centimeter lateral margin is pretty big. Ecrine porocarcinoma often happens on the legs, um, but it can happen other places as well, anywhere where you have ecrine glands. This is an interesting tumor. If you do some reading, in the older literature, it's perceived as being quite aggressive and highly prone to metastasis. And some of the newer literature, however, is much more sanguine about the outcome and says, listen, it's not really that bad. It seldom metastasizes. And I think that is my clinical experience as well. 
So if you, look, if you get one of these and you look it up in an older textbook, you're going to get panicky, but that's probably not necessary. Here's a vegetant lesion on the back of the hand. Um, here's a less distinct lesion, a little eroded lesion, more typical reddish lesion um, on the chest wall. For primary tumors, you can excise it, you could do Mohs, whatever you choose to do. For recurrent tumors, you probably want to do Mohs. They can metastasize, and like I said, the historical data is 20% develop lymph node metastases and 10% organ mets. But I think in real life, the rates are significantly lower. If they do have metastatic disease, you might need chemotherapy. Lymph node dissection is unproven, um, and it's uh, of interest probably just for uh, academic purposes. Sebaceous carcinoma is a not super rare tumor. Most commonly happens on the eyelids. Should be in a differential for eyelid tumors. Um, looks like a fairly bland small nodule usually. Most surgery can be used for sebaceous carcinoma, but it has to be modified again to take wider margins because these things are often very large. So if you choose not to do Mohs, you might want to do some scouting biopsies along the periphery of the, the lesion to see how far it goes. And if you do do Mohs, you might want to take an additional layer around the whole thing to make sure you've got a safety margin or something comparable. This is a case of a scalp, um, occipital scalp, sebaceous carcinoma, nice big nodule, uncommon, not the typical eyelid one. Here is another very unusual presentation. I'm showing you the weird presentations because these often do present weirdly. This looks almost like a little eroded squamous cell or Bowen's disease um, on the abdomen, but turned out to be sebaceous carcinoma. Here's a case that we did last month uh, of a um, uh, sebaceous carcinoma on the upper back. And as you can see, the final wound defect is very large compared to the original defect. So um, that's something that often happens with sebaceous carcinomas. So for these lesions, you do want to um, be cognizant of the fact that this is a very serious thing and patients can develop metastases and often do and you really want to get them all out. Um, when they're near the eye, unfortunately, the eye can be lost in some cases as well. When you're taking these out, you want to take wide margins. They're non-contiguous sometimes. You want to take extra biopsies. You want to take an additional layer of Mohs around the periphery. The case that I just showed you um, actually went a little bit deeper in the center. We had to involve, after that, there was a further stage where we involved um, surgical oncology to kind of go through the muscle a little bit in the center. But you really, really do want to remove those completely. And uh, we'll discuss this later a little bit, but you're often the most expert person in the entire medical center about these, even if some other service is helping you out. So you have to guide them as to how aggressive they should be. Because otherwise, sometimes they're too aggressive. Sometimes they take a five centimeter margin around a basal cell, and they'll take like a five millimeter margin around a sebaceous carcinoma, both of which are inappropriate. So you need to give them guidance. And it's kind of, <laughs> you have to be a little diplomatic because they think they're smarter than you, but you have to kind of convince them that it's really their idea or something like that. Um, so um, that they do what's best for the patient. Extra mammary Paget's disease, um, also very difficult to treat and also potentially uh, very dangerous and can cause death, of course, uh, as it metastasizes. Often presents as pruritus, almost like a large itchy patch. Looks like maybe they have a little tinea or a little um, subderm or something like that, a little intertrigo. 
you definitely want to evaluate the patient for systemic visceral malignancy, um, like a secondary adenocarcinoma. And there's a large workup for that. So you don't have to do this, but you want to send them for that as soon as you know that they have extra mammary Paget's disease. If it's local disease only, you can resect it. But again, there are a lot of skip lesions. Um, so resection can be quite difficult in these cases. Resection and reconstruction can both be quite difficult. So we've had a couple of cases where much of the perineum was involved, scrotum, um, penis, um, vulva, and so on and so forth. And as you can imagine, even if it's relatively superficial, if you denude a 100 or 200 square centimeter area, reconstructing it is difficult with skin grafts, especially if it's functional, like a genital area. So often you will need to involve urology or GU because even plastic surgery will get a little anxious about how exactly they're going to graft the entire scrotum and make it functional and not scar down. Um, sometimes they can use secondary intent closures as well for large areas with vacuum-assisted devices, very wide skin grafting. These are difficult to do under local anesthesia. You can take them out under local. You can't graft them under local. Uh, perianal disease has a higher frequency of associated underlying malignancy than vulval disease, and if they have lymphovascular invasion, that's a very, very, very bad prognosis. Um, really, essentially, five-year survival of zero with inguinal metastases. There are some other odd skin cancers, like mucinous carcinoma, that I've actually never seen. I've seen one case, but um, wasn't mine. Um, very few documented cases. Small, poorly defined papule looks kind of like little mucinous papule, but is in fact a malignancy. Um, there's another manifestation from the literature. Odd looking thing under microscopy. So for these, you want to rule out metastases. There's a workup. And interestingly, you want to evaluate them for estrogen and progesterone receptor positivity. Um, there's no gold standard for treatment. You can do whatever kind of excision you want. Um, but interestingly enough, if they are receptor positive, you can use tamoxifen which causes complete remission. So here's a case of a tumor that does not require cutting out. Um, you really just need tamoxifen if they're receptor positive. Surgery is really not appropriate in that case. And then finally, DFSP. Now this is obviously not as rare. You've all seen DFSPs, I suspect. They are often late diagnosed because they look like scars. They look like keloids. They look like keloidal scars, cysts. People can have these for 10, 20, 30 years before they're diagnosed. Fortunately, they're slow growing, so nothing horrible happens. Um, there are some, uh, here are some atypical cases. Here's a case of one um, on a child that looked like a quote-unquote cyst or something else um, that turned out to be a DFSP, congenital variant. Uncommon, but can happen. I've had a case of a similar one on the back of, of the hand of a young girl, a 10-year-old girl, that looked like a brown patch and that was removed by plastic surgery as a possible congenital pigmented nevus. Like, you know, um, they took that out and sure enough it wasn't a pigmented nevus at all, it was a DFSP which then required careful removal so that we wouldn't cause injury to her tendons, etc. So they can be weird looking, they don't have to always look like keloids. Sometimes they can look relatively indistinct like this, it doesn't look like much of anything, a little d almost like a DF but really turned out to be DFSP with wider margins. Now, DFSP is probably the classic non-melanoma skin cancer that is best removed by Mohs. And why is that? Well, if you look at all of the raw data from DFSP case series, and we did this, and you analyze it, we actually requested all the raw data from all the large case series we could find, and we reanalyzed it with the mathematical model, and we tried to figure out 
what margin, if we were just blindly, we didn't do MOS, we just did an excision of an even margin around what we could see, what width of margin would we need to take around these tumors to have a 95% likelihood of histological clearance? And it turned out that even for tumors that had a clinical diameter of three centimeters, you would need to take a four centimeter margin around the whole thing, make, create a 10 centimeter wound defect to have a 95% risk likelihood of clearing the tumor. So hence, MOS is useful because making these enormous holes is not usually practical. They're gonna be big enough as it is and you want to minimize the size of a hole because you can have a DFSP a lot bigger than three centimeters and then what's the hole gonna be, 20 centimeters, 30 centimeters? You wanna minimize these. So there are two cases we model, the best case scenario and the worst case scenario. The best case scenario is let's hope that the margin you choose is around the actual histological center of the tumor. And the worst case scenario is that you're a little bit off center, so you need a wider margin. So we modeled both of them. And you can see um, the red spots are the wor worst case scenario, and the green spots are the best case scenario. So obviously, if you have a best case scenario, you need a smaller margin. Tumor index on the x-axis is just a measure of the tumor size in two dimensions. And so for the best case, this is the overall plot we got. And what does this plot show? Well, what this plot shows, if you look at the bottom, the x and y axis, that shows the size of the tumor, the clinically apparent size. Uh, and then the z axis shows how big a margin was required for surgical excision. So if you assume that as tumors get bigger, a larger and larger margin is required, then this plot should begin at zero, zero, and should evenly scale up to the right-hand corner, okay? But in fact, it doesn't, it's all over the place. And because it's all over the place, what it suggests is there's no relationship between the size of margin required and the clinically apparent tumor size, which again sort of suggests that you have no idea where it really is. And that's another reason for trying to check margins intraoperatively. So just because it looks like a big tumor, the defect might not be that big. If it looks like a small tumor, the defect might be very big when you're totally done. There's usually no penetration below fascia for these tumors, but sometimes there is. So I have had cases that have penetrated into the shoulder cavity, one that went into the abdominal viscera and colorectal surgery had to kind of disentangle it. Um, I haven't had any cases in the facial sinuses, but it's been reported. So 90% of the time, this doesn't go below fascia but sometimes it does. So if you're concerned, you might want to get preoperative imaging, okay? And sometimes even if they're relatively small, you might want to get preoperative imaging because they can be in a place where MOS might still be indicated um, because there's so many structures, you don't want to amputate the foot. Um, so for digital DFSP, you still want to consider some kind of uh, microscopically guided therapy. So how do we do it? For small tumors, if it's, let's say, three centimeters, you might have a relatively large defect. You can still close it locally. We can close those seven, 13 centimeter defect on the trunk. It's not hard to close uh, with a flap. However, if they get much larger than that, if you have a 20, 30 centimeter defect, at least in my practice, that is very difficult to close under local anesthesia. And that we would normally send to plastic surgery. They would do an artificial skin placement on it and then do a skin graft on it later on or something comparable. This is the paradigm that we use, and maybe you can't read it, hopefully you can. Um, basically what we do is when we get a DFSP, we look at what size it is. If it's a big one, and if it's um, um, in an anatomically sensitive area, then we're definitely going to get an MRI and other 
um, appropriate imaging, see if there's any subfascial penetration, if so, involve appropriate services. If it's small, if it's not an anatomically significant area, um, then we can just proceed by ourselves and take it all out. And what do we do on the actual day of? The way we do it is for the treatment of the medium to large tumors, we have consultations with the dermatologist, the surgical oncologist, the plastic surgeon. We have a team, one of each of those. And then what I do as a dermatologist is I clear the peripheral margins. I take a donut around where I think it's going to end. And I check those under Mohs. If they're positive, I take another stage. When I think it's negative, I take a final stage for permanence, for rush permanence, because again, when you're taking like 46 slides or something like that at the end of the day, you're human, it's frozen section, you could make a mistake. So you take a little sliver, send it for permanence. Those come back in about 48 hours. At that point, the peripheral margins are clear, and the patient then goes to surgical oncology, which takes the deep margin right below the fascia. Because like I said, they hardly ever go below the fascia. So if they go just below the fascia, they pretty much clear the deep margin, and then plastics puts on a graft. So that's our paradigm. We leave a gap between the time I do the Mohs and they do the procedure about two weeks, because in case the permanent sections come back positive on my peripheral Mohs, I can go back one more time. And that's the donut that we take out. And these are the referring services that we normally use. It's Mohs for peripheral, Dermpath for permanent section verification, Surgeon for deep margins, and the graft closure by plastics. There is a medication called Imatinib, which will shrink down DFSPs. It's a systemic medication. So for very large ones, you can pretreat before surgery. We usually refer to clinical oncology for that because I don't really know how to manage those patients, and I'm not an internist. Um, um, it depends on your own center, though. Some people, like our clinical oncologists, are very wary about using that, and they kind of dissuade patients, and the patients get dissuaded, of course. Um, but if you have a more aggressive clinical oncologist, that's, that's an option. Why not just use the medication? Because nobody really knows if it's just a remission or if it's really going away. You know? So you still have to cut it out, but you at least make a smaller cutout. Um, the last thing I'd like to talk about, I think my time is probably nearing completion, is eruptive keratoacanthomas. I don't know if you've seen a lot of these, but these are a thing that definitely does happen. After excisional surgery, excision, Mohs, whatever, for squamous cell carcinomas, often on the lower extremities, but other sites as well. What happens? You cut out the squamous cell, you sew it up, everything looks good. They come back two weeks later, they have five more bumps all around there that look just like little keratoacanthomas. And if you biopsy them, they come back invasive squamous cell carcinoma. Well, what do you do? Do you cut them all out too? We've done that, then you've got seven more. What are you going to do? So now you're getting kind of panicky. You're thinking, oh boy, I don't know what's going on. This is actually less common, less uncommon than you might think. I've had this happen at least six times, and it's reported in the literature. The best thing to do is to try to come up with some systemic management. You can inject them with 5-fluorouracil. It's very painful. They get necrotic. It's a mess. The best success that I've had is with use of acetretin or seriotane, systemic medication, 25 milligrams a day to start. And you can keep them on that for a long period of time. In fact, you have to because there's a rebound if you take them off it right away. So they're going to be on it for six months to a year. Okay. In the meantime, if they keep breaking through and getting more SCCs, you have to keep cutting them out because they're SCCs but this usually suppresses it. You do need to get blood tests to track their lipids and liver function tests. Some people do not tolerate this well. It can cause some joint pain, dry in eyes and mouth, like every other um, 
retinoid can, but most people tolerate it well. Um, and it does a great job for the selected patients. It completely shuts this down usually. It's also useful for patients who are getting catastrophic carcinogenesis with squamous cell carcinomas. Um, silicone gel sheeting can help compress the, the area as well, even though it's not really therapeutic. It does help a little bit. Merkel cell carcinoma, the final non-melanoma skin cancer to touch upon. Um, in my experience, and in my opinion, there's really no indication for Mohs in Merkel cell carcinoma. Some people do do this. I don't think it's bad. I just don't think it adds anything because Mohs does two things. It provides you with microscopic margin control and tissue sparing. And for Merkel cell, there's no tissue sparing. You have to take like a huge swath around it. So, so much for tissue sparing. And there's no microscopic margin control because it's been shown even if you control microscopic margins, it still metastasizes. So you could do it, but what's the utility? There are some national centers that see a lot of patients with Merkel cell. I would consider sending your highly motivated Merkel cell patients to one of these. Chris Bajajkin in the Midwest is probably the biggest um, center at the University of Michigan. They see a couple of new Merkel cell patients a week. So that's like, you know, I've seen like maybe 10 in my life. So that's a lot of patients. Um, Paul Neiman, University of Washington in Seattle, and Memorial Sloan has a pretty good center for Merkel cell as well. Um, I mean, really, there's not much you can do except for take these out and pray and hope for the best. They usually radiate the local basin as well as the lymph nodes. Um, but you know, because it's such a dismal prognosis, much worse than for melanoma, for the highly motivated patients, it's nice to at least give them all the information they have so they feel like they have some control. I'd like to culminate by speaking about the opposite thing, which is treatment of rare and uncommon cutaneous malignancies by Mohs surgery. So now I want, this is very brief, I just want to you assume that the only treatment you had was Mohs, and how effective would it be for these tumors? Okay, so now we're kind of flipping it around. I'm not suggesting you do all of these by Mohs, I'm just using this to give you an estimate of the efficacy of Mohs in these tumors. So what we did is we looked at all of the rare non-melanoma skin cancers treated by Mohs ever in the English language literature. And we found about 390 papers, and we extracted all the raw data from those 390 papers, pooled them by tumor category, and reanalyzed the data. And so this is what we found for the four major categories we looked at, microcystic adnexal carcinoma, DFSB sebaceous carcinoma, and Merkel cell carcinoma. So most of these, with the exception of DFSP, are in head and neck sites. And that's pretty much true for most non-melanoma skin cancers. In terms of ages, the patients in general tended to be older, 60s and 70s, except for DFSP patients who tended to be younger. Size of lesion was modest in most cases, very small for spacious carcinoma on the eyelid, obviously, very large for DFSP. And the size of the defect was comparable. For max, there were pretty good sized defects. For DFSPs, there were enormous defects. For the other ones, there were relatively smaller defects. In terms of recurrence after most for DFSP, very close to zero if it's appropriately treated. For microcystic adnexal carcinoma, a little bit higher. Same for sebaceous carcinoma. Very high for Merkel cell carcinoma. And as you can see, that's probably why we don't recommend Mohs for those, because it's just a terrible business. And then what is this data based on? This is based on three to four years follow-up. So the theory is some of these recurrence rates could be higher in the 10-year window, but this is for three to four years follow-up. I just wanted to give you that. So overall recurrence after Mohs of all rare um, non-melanoma skin cancer. It's obviously not a very useful statistic because they're very dis different in their malignant effect. But if you had to come up with one number, it's 
And if you had to come up with one number for disease-related mortality after MOSE for treatment of all rare non-melanoma skin cancers, it would be 2%. Okay? So um, I think we're done for time, right? We're pretty much out of time. I think that's, that my take-home message is really that you are the boss when it comes to non-melanoma skin cancers. You are the person who's going to be guiding the multidisciplinary management. It behooves you to you know, read the literature and make sure that the other referral services are on the same page. For instance, in our case of um, um, uh, the, the sebaceous carcinoma I showed you, we work with the same group we do a lot of DFSPs with. So the DFSP group knows DFSP isn't very aggressive. And so they just take a little sliver right underneath the fascia. So we have to speak to them and say, you know, this looks like a DFSP defect, but this is a sebaceous carcinoma. This is a very bad thing. You cannot take a little sliver under the fascia. You have to take the entire muscle out over here if this person has any chance at all. So you have to provide them with that guidance. Thank you. <laughs>